0: Welcome to episode 206 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast topic this week, we're going to take a look at the idea of automating knowledge work, and in particular, scientific discovery. So there's no doubt that knowledge work is going to be changing significantly in the coming decades due to both massive computing power and its coupling with artificial intelligence. So it's fascinating to consider the aspects of science, technology, and design that might be easily automated. AI and deep learning are rapidly changing areas of activity that were previously thought to be the exclusive arena of human cognition. So, with that preamble, Dirk, I think you're going to dig into AI a little bit and uh, give us a, a, a primer on that.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think there's some confusion about what what AI is and how how it functions. Um, it's I think it's it's really not rocket science, but it it feels like rocket science because artificial intelligence is sort of a at the extreme of our imagination, a big and scary thing. Um, uh, you know, the, the recent trend in AI is towards machine learning or, or deep learning, and uh, there's a lot of advances around those technologies. And um, the, the technologies seem confusing because they're in juxtaposition to the old approaches to AI, which were rules-based. They were rules-based approaches. That, However, uh, machine learning and deep learning are also rules-based, where they differ from... The thing called rules-based is even though the AI, the software is programmed with a a ton of rules um, in a machine learning environment, then it is using those rules within the parameters of those rules, continuing to refine the way that it behaves. In the old rules-based systems, it was limited to only the rules in the system. And so to make changes or alterations to what that software was able to do, People would need to write new rules and it very quickly (laughs) didn't scale um, and and broke down in terms of trying to to get artificial intelligence that's more powerful and doing more interesting things and so um, you know crucially that's the the big the big learning here it's not that we've gone from oh there used to be rules now there's no rules and there's this black box of wizardry of artificial intelligence it's still quote unquote rules based But now it's the AI that takes on and carries on with the rules um, as opposed to being human reliant. Right. Interesting. So
0: there's a online magazine called Aeon, which uh, I enjoy reading essays on technology and science. And there's uh, an author uh, by the name of Ahmed Akhtib, who's a molecular cancer biologist at Harvard Medical School. And he wrote an interesting piece uh, called Science Has Outgrown the Human Mind and Its Limited Capacities. So I have a couple of audio clips from that essay. Uh, They very kindly provide uh, audio version as well as the uh, written word. So I thought I'd use a couple of those quotes as fodder for our discussion today. Uh, so here's here's the first one uh, from Ahmed's piece, and uh, it's sort of defining the problem that science is undergoing in this in this age of, of big data science.
2: Science is in the midst of a data crisis. In 2016, there were more than 1.2 million new papers published in the biomedical sciences alone bringing the total number of peer-reviewed biomedical papers to over 26 million. However, the average scientist reads only about 250 papers a year. Meanwhile, the quality of scientific literature has been in decline. Some recent studies found that the majority of biomedical papers were irreproducible.
0: So that lays out two difficulties that scientists uh, encounter, you know, in whatever your field of specialization might be, namely that there are far too many published papers to keep up with, uh, so, you know, on the order of uh, of, of millions, and uh, the other problem being that there's a validation loop problem where there's published papers, but at the same time there isn't uh uh, confirmation of a lot of these pieces that are being published. So you have a good chance of either not discovering something uh, that could affect your field, or uh, reading through something and and basing it on on data that hasn't been properly vetted yet. So with you know limited time uh, crunch for people who are obviously doing other things, they can't be sorting through, uh, the, the, the data, uh, in, in that fashion, which is where, uh, there's tremendous potential for AI services to augment, uh, sort of human knowledge workers. It's, it's maybe a little bit frightening to consider that, um, you know, as, as a human being, you're, uh, you're trained to do, you know, certain kinds of work and you're, you know, you're, uh, maybe considering that, hey, you know, since this is knowledge work, so-called, um, this area is something that, you know, isn't going to be automated by, you know, robotics or whatever yeah. um, that you might a- encounter in in more uh, uh, manufacturing, say, uh, or manual labor. Yeah. Uh, but, but the reality of it is, if if the work that you're doing is following an algorithm, you know, following certain steps that are reproducible and could be adjusted for, you know, a machine to digest the information and and uh, create the outputs that that you're looking for, uh, you know, a percentage of your work is very much uh susceptible or or likely to be automated and and AI is is actually going to be a way of um helping you get your job done because you're encountering these problems that you can't possibly handle with your limited throughput dirk your thoughts on 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 those uh elements so far
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the way it's happening already, right? Um, you know, I, I had a chance to tour IBM Watson Health recently, and um, that's exactly what they're doing already in healthcare. It's not certainly not theory; it's it's applied. So, you know, I, IBM Watson has you know their their machine basically their or you know, I'm, I'm using it in the singular, but I, I don't know sort of all the different permutations behind the curtain. But they have their Deep learning approach to artificial intelligence. And what they're doing is partnering with um, healthcare institutions, you know, at the level of, like, say, a Mayo Clinic, and going in and providing an instantiation of Watson that is specific to the context of some specialty that the healthcare organization has. So, you know, let's use cancer as an example. Mayo Clinic wants to use IBM Watson Health for um, helping to diagnose. Um, cancer, um, and not just diagnose, but also provide treatment options for. And their sale, their approaches, they're saying, look, um, very similar to the article that you have here, John, is that healthcare professionals, they can't read, you know, all of the literature that's out there. They can only read a fraction of the literature. And, you know, are they reading the right things? Is that fraction even the, the, the best things or the most correct things? There's all these clinical trials that are happening, and it's just impossible for a doctor, for a healthcare professional to be aware of all them. And so the model is, um, you know, again, using um, Mayo Clinic in this sort of theoretical example, Mayo Clinic is then essentially providing the rules to IBM Watson Health from, from the cancer perspective, from the healthcare perspective, on top of the healthcare um, expertise that the IBM Watson Health team has already. They're sort of co-creating how this system should operate. And then the system is giving the advice to the doctor, is saying, you know, here, here are the array of possible things it could be, here's the percent chance of each, or, you know, the UI may not manifest in exactly that way, but it's saying, hey, here's guidance for diagnosis. And then once diagnosis is figured out, it's saying, here's guidance for um, treatment. Um, so it's, it is it is really becoming becoming the brain. And the IBM Watson Health presentation was very careful to keep the doctor in the center of it. And I'm sure they are because these healthcare um, systems and organizations wouldn't be buying it if their sale was we're going to put the doctors out of business. But, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't take a, a, a genius to connect the dots and say, hey, you know, decades from now, um, <laughs> the doctors are going to be removed in the in the way that we know them to now. Right. I mean, up to this point. The doctor is the scientific expert repository at the center of the healthcare process. That simply won't be the case. It will be AI along the lines of IBM Watson Health or some, you know, current or future competitor that's providing that service. And what I found interesting that of course they're not dealing with because they're they're just worried about selling this system and it's. Its present um, incarnation and in the present environment. What I found interesting was sort of the service design question of what should that future system look like? Uh, Because, having, you know, for me as a consumer, I might want to interface with Watson Health directly, but there are other people um, through their preferences, maybe people who are older, not as comfortable with the technology, or for any of a number of different reasons. Need some kind of intermediary. What should that intermediary look like? Is it is it a social worker? Is it you know somebody who's more like a nurse, so they still have the technical healthcare background, but they don't need the sort of scientific research aspects that doctors currently have, or something else you know uh, entirely different. So um, yeah, that's maybe a long winded way of not answering your question, but to share sort of another example and what's what's going on and some of the considerations around it.
0: Here's a second uh, quote from from the essay I was referring to, uh, which lays out the hypothesis for uh, sort of scientific inquiry being automated via
2: AI. One promising strategy to overcome the current crisis is to integrate machines and artificial intelligence in the scientific process. Machines have greater memory and higher computational capacity than the human brain automation of the scientific process could greatly increase the rate of discovery. It could even begin another scientific revolution. That huge possibility hinges on an equally huge question. Can scientific discovery really be automated? So I, I think it's interesting that
0: he you know, posits that, that, uh, that question there in, um, in, say, like Big Pharma... Uh, I, I think part of that question is already being answered. There there are elements of pharma research where, uh, you know, to sort of increase the, the pace of, of drug discovery and development, they're, you know, they're sort of already using uh, AI to, to help, uh, um, you know, search through all this data. And while that's still in its nascent stages, i I think the question of whether or not AI can be helpful to scientific discovery, i I think that's a you know that's a positive. like that's that's very much uh, where things are going. to uh, to go back to a uh, a comment that you made about uh, about Watson earlier and talking about the service design. Uh, components to this. I, I do think there is a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, we'll call it service design and change management and practice design and all of those things that, that would go into a sort of new business processes that are going to be engendered by this coupling of, you know, the uh, expert with their, uh, assistant AI or however you want to frame that relationship right now. Yeah. Uh, so what that ultimately means is that, um, the configuration of, uh, scientific discovery, whether, you know, whether it be, uh, uh academic research or, or big pharma research and, and, and even in, into, into healthcare, um, there, there are, uh, changing roles that sort of need to be considered in conjunction with the development and deployment of these technologies, like IBM Watson, right? So we're we're looking we're way too focused right now on the the new engine that could, right? So so we're plopping these engines down into various business uh, contexts and and not really reconfiguring the businesses and the processes around those engines. So it's there are going to be lots of fail points at the beginning because doctors aren't going to readily be working with AI in a, in a productive manner it's it's gonna cause friction right it's yeah. gonna there's an emotional component there I'm sure yeah. I mean some of the best I'm, I'm sure that, that some of the best practices will figure it out but it will be because they considered the workflow and and the relationships um, there's it's it's almost creating an entire area of uh, sort of design or a or, or service design area that is taking the technological components and and really sort of reconfiguring practices to, to map to those um, and I think that that evolutionary process is going to move a lot quicker as well so you're going to need to bring in the technology change your business process, go through whatever that adoption period is, get productive, get profitable, and then there's going to be this next wave of technology that's going to upend things again. But I I think we're sort of into this continuous change um, era. And the reason I bring all this up is because the big promise of electronic health records was that it was going to digitize health information at hospitals and make it make better healthcare happen. Right. Yeah. Guess what? It's not happening, folks. Mm. It's not happening because no one can use the technology and the technology is not compatible with, uh, you know, you can't share medical records, et cetera, et cetera. So you're going to see the same kinds of problems as you're digitizing uh, other aspects of knowledge work. I mean, by by that standard, the EHR is like you know just just a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. The, the amount of pain people are going through to implement those is just a tiny bit. So that's a long, a really long-winded way of saying that uh, change management and service design are going to become you know big players in this uh, in this as
1: well. well. That's really true, and if. You know, if this article is correct, I mean, that may just be the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's saying a next scientific revolution. Um, that's, that's awe-inspiring. And I say that from the standpoint of where we already are now with science is we, we, we understand many of the mysteries of the universe, right, or we think we do. We have hypotheses that often seem to, to prove out um, although we then discovered new things that, that prove it differently. I, from a science perspective, it doesn't seem like there's that much to learn. I wonder I wonder if the next frontier that AI actually helps us to figure out and solve, um, ironically, maybe about ourselves, if maybe it will be through the computers that we're finally able to understand the human animal and how and why we function and create clarity where now there is uh, murkiness around Ourselves, that would be um, a delicious irony, given all of the fear around AI um, being so machine focused and and taking things in non-humanistic ways. Maybe it will be the ultimate um, the ultimate lens through which to view hum- humanity.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good point, Dirk. I I think also uh, w- within this um, realm of of change, we're also going to see. Uh, further splintering of, of these um, uh, research and uh, um, other capabilities. So, I mean, you can see it sort of with the citizen science movement where uh, folks are, are uh, basically creating uh, their own wet labs, like in their dorm room or you know in in their basement or whatever, and and pushing the science forward uh, in in small but you know important ways. Uh, so with an AI assistant, you can all of a sudden see the possibilities for uh, great you know groundbreaking discoveries coming from uh, a really dispersed kind of workforce where, where it's no longer simply uh, lab centric or university centric um, but the work can be further uh, sort of crowdsourced right and and, and creating an acceleration, Patterns, So, you know, uh, uh, discoveries build on one another. And I think that might be uh, uh, what Ahmed uh, means when when he's talking about another scientific revolution. So harnessing, you know, the quote power of the crowd. Right. That's an awful, awful buzzword. But harnessing uh, more citizen science. Uh, in, in addition to our standard institutions of academia and, you know, uh, big pharma, et cetera.
2: Sure, sure,
0: So I guess the conclusion that I come to is, I mean, we're still at the very early stages, but uh, I, you know, am always, uh, you know, approaching these things with a little bit of trepidation since, you know, I'm a knowledge worker, I'm a designer, I'm a writer. And, and anytime you start talking about automating uh, knowledge work—it, you know, freaks me out a little bit. I mean, why wouldn't it? Uh, but, but I think we can see that at least in in the next the next stages of you know whether we're talking about automating uh, aspects of science scientific discovery or or other areas these these are tools of an enhancement at least in in the midterm, uh, and so so uh, perhaps in addition to a little bit of trepidation we can also uh, be Uh, excited about the possibilities. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward, if you're trying to remember something that you liked, you can find the digital life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com.
1: Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D-Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 206 of The Digital Life.
0: For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.